In our culture, we learn through stories. But what if the stories we hear don't match the reality of life? What if the stories we hear every day that tell us how to write the narrative of our lives actually lead us to a false narrative? My name is Tim Kroll, and on this podcast, you will hear real stories, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Real people sharing the hard times, the bends in the roads along life's journey. If you're ready to join a community of other real people who are writing the narrative of their lives, then go to narrative.live and join the community. Now let's dive into today's show. We have another fabulous story, and uh, to be honest, I've just met Kathy, uh, but we talked in the green room, and that's the reason why I can say this is going to be a fabulous story, because I've got little snippets that I'm really curious to hear what the backstory is and how we're going to actually be able to flesh out some of this conversation. So I'm really excited, and the fact is you said, hey, I've had two or three transitions. I had this belief here, and then I transitioned, and I'm like, oh, I can't wait to get into this. But before we get into all of that... Let's start where we always start. We just met in that elevator. You've got 30 seconds. Who is Kathy? Hey, Tim, thanks so much for having me. And we are kind of just meeting in an elevator. We're meeting in a virtual room. (laughs) And I would say I was a Texan by birth. I'm a North Carolinian by choice. I grew up in El Paso, Texas. I've now been in Charlotte, North Carolina for 37 plus years. I'm the mom to four grown daughters, a grandmother now, which is surprising to me, to one and a half children. One is going to be born in a couple weeks. Probably by the time this airs, I'll be grandmother to two grandsons. Um, And I really am so Someone who loves ideas. I love learning and I like helping people find what's calling them because I've spent a long time trying to figure out what's calling me. And so now I love helping others find what's calling them. Oh, I, I love that aspect because that's the turnaround point when you're climbing and having this journey, you turn around and reach back to be able to help somebody else out. Uh, or just make the outward. climb not so hard, right? Like, well, <laughs> it's still hard. I mean, it I've is still hard and you can point hard. people to the path and they're probably going to still pick the harder road, but you can tell them where there's an easier path. So. Yeah, exactly. And then you can uh, help pick them up. And here's a rope that you can actually use to be able to help make it easier. Right, which is what I love about your show. I'm glad that you're doing this. Yeah, and I I love that whole concept of how we're reaching back. And again, that's the mission of letting people know that, yes, there are going to be hard times. Yes, there's going to be challenges, but you're not the only one that's been through it. You're not the only one that's going through it. And that's why we share the stories is to be able to go back and say, hey, this is how I overcame. This is how I went through those challenges. But frankly, And this is where we start all the time. What was the narrative of growing up before stepping into the adulthood, uh, before becoming who you are now? What did you think life was going to be like? What were the, the ways that you believed you were going to conduct and write your story? Well, I think I, for better, for worse, I was raised by two very high achieving type A perfect parents who I think I believe the narrative that if I just work hard enough, then I too will have this perfectly crafted life. I think that started to crack pretty early on, however, although I still kept believing that narrative. My mother, who was brilliant and had achieved a lot of things in her life, particularly academically, was bipolar. And so that definitely reframed my life in terms of you know, having two steady parents. I think what I believed from that, a couple of things, I believed I became pathologically self-reliant because I couldn't, my dad was trying to take care of my mom. My mom wasn't able to take care of her three daughters. And I think my sisters and myself really learned to do things ourselves. But I think in all that, we also 
believed that, well, I am what I do and I, I am how perfect I become. And so I spent a lot of time trying to be perfect, trying to achieve and believing that was my worth. Oh, wow. I got a lot of questions. <laughs> so when we jump into this, one was the belief that you had to, if you worked hard enough and you will have a perfect life, was that based on what your parents had said to you? Was it something that was exemplified? Was it, how did you come to that conclusion that that's the way life was going to work? I think it was both. I think because my, both my parents had started out super high achieving and then my mother was unable to do a lot of the things that she had planned in her life, which made my dad, I think, double down in his life. I think a good thing that they taught us was service was really important and giving back. So I think that was a good narrative that I learned in all that to really volunteer, to serve your community, to be an active member in your community. So I think that was a good piece. But I think because we were working so hard to keep my mom happy, and if we were on video for your listeners, I would put that in air quotes. Happy looked like, you know, the perfect little family in church that was dressed and showing up and doing what we were supposed to do with a a dad who was a lawyer and, you know, a, a valued member of community. But we weren't really talking at all about what was happening in our home, which was pretty chaotic. Mm. So I think what I was learning is to to put on a good face, look and present one way. And if there were troubles, just don't talk about them, brush them under the rug, except that left us with a really lumpy rug. <laughs> it does. You know, and I, I want to bring this one point up because you said something that I think often we miss in our own lives is we we adopt narratives and we our, our show is we talk about the false narratives that we break and the, the thing, but there's also some really good positive narratives and you mentioned it briefly, but I want to, I want to make sure that we don't skip over that. And that is service is important. Can you just maybe touch on that? Because that is a thing I'm sure it sounds like you've kind of carried that forward in your life, but let's just take a second and say, okay, this is a positive narrative narrative that I learned from my parents. It wasn't all negative. There is definitely some good. Oh, yeah. And I think because of my parents' example, I mean, my my dad was raising three daughters, you know, in the 1960s and 70s when some women were told, you are who you marry, right? And mm-hmm. my dad never asked, you know, are you are you going to get married and have children? Although he, he thought that was an important part of life. He would ask me, what are you going to do in this world? How are you going to leave the world a better place? And mm-hmm. and he used to really encourage me that, that you could do anything, like anything you want to do, which at some point I know that he meant to be encouraging, but in some ways it was paralyzing because I felt I needed to do something that was so big and so remarkable that, that could maybe, you know, make my dad a little bit happier in this life that had become not what he intended and much sadder Mm. than, than what he became. And I think the other piece of that, my dad ended up dying very young at 64 and so it left me with this, wow, I need to do something that that lives up to this belief that my father had in me that I was going to do something in the world. And so in my 40s, I was really searching for that. What is it? What is it that I meant to do? How can I leave the world a better place? But it can't just be anything because my dad believed I was going to do something big. So, so how can I do and find this big thing that leaves the world a better place and and what is meant for me? Wow. Uh, So good and bad coming in off of that. But let's 
if it's okay, how did you feel during those times when you were living under the pressure of the outside has to look super solid, put together, complete, versus knowing full well you got lumps under the rug, which frankly, most people actually see that and they know that something's going on, but everybody just chooses to ignore it. So what did that do to you Maybe in the self-worth aspect or in the how you saw yourself, where did that have impact? I think I, I went along with the shiny outside for a really long time. And it's funny, I never we had never talked about my mother's mental health. We literally pretended it it never happened. A lot of my good friends didn't even that I was growing up with never even knew that was happening in our home. It started to come out very publicly when I wrote a memoir. But even before that, I think the first crack in that was, I remember being in New York and I watched a play called Next to Normal. And I had bought tickets thinking it was going to be this funny, witty. I didn't really understand that the subject line was mental health. And there's a moment in that play where there's a daughter talking to her father and the mother in the play is mentally ill and they're both crying on stage. And I realized that I was crying in the audience and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, like, how is that girl ever going to be okay? This is like her mom's note. Okay. She's not going to be okay. And I remember thinking, how did I ever think that I was going to be okay if I'm not going to talk about this and not share it? And that sent me into therapy. So for the first time in my life, in my early forties, I went to a therapist. And I started talking about all the things that we'd been sweeping under the rug in my family for a very, very long time. And I think that was the beginning of breaking open. And then I ended up in my first memoir writing about a lot of things, but I ended up writing one of the threads is understanding mental health and that my mom didn't choose it and I didn't choose it, but what can we, you know, bring good, what good came out of it? So I think there's a really key element here, and, and this is where the transition, I think, starts to come in. Unfortunately, our world looks at it and says, well, you've lived this way for so long. Don't change it. Don't rock the boat. Stay in that comfort zone because that's the way that you've done it. You recognized that, oh, this isn't normal. This is something that I actually need to work on. How did you like? How did you even just break that one piece of that narrative of being able to say, we're never going to talk about it? What opened up? I mean, it sounded like the play was just the kind of the beginning, but I know that there's people listening that are like, dude, I would never talk about this. We have made a covenant with ourselves that we are never going to share this. So like, what were, how, how did you break that, that one piece? Well, there's probably 15 years in between that we haven't talked about. <laughs> so I, I think it, it, it really, a, a couple of different things happened. I was really looking for that moment in my life that I was going to change what it was I was doing. I was a graphic designer. I was a mom of four, but I knew that the life that I was living was not what I was meant to be doing. And I was a volunteer in a soup kitchen and I ended up going, quitting my job and going to work for that soup kitchen to work on housing for people experiencing homelessness. And I think spending the next five years in very close contact with people suffering with mental illness, who I could have a compassion for in a way that I'd never had the same compassion for my mom. I think that started to break my heart open in a whole new way, because I realized that, gosh, this, this woman who I was housing and, you know, giving help to 
had my mom not had my father to keep her safe, I'm sure she might have experienced homelessness as well. Hmm. And so I really just got to see mental health in a in a different way of of people who have resources and safety nets can live one way and people who don't have resources and safety nets end up in another way. And just trying to find my way into compassion, my six-year-old self still wanted my mom to be a different kind of mom, right. yet my 40-year-old self could see this is not something you choose. Um, and I could start to see my mom in her resilience and all the things she had pushed through and all the ways that she had kept her life together um, with a whole new help and understanding and love for who she was. So. So it's been an interesting topic, and it's it's happened over and over again, especially as we were talking about the transitions. When you start to serve and you start to look outside of yourself, you suddenly – I shouldn't say suddenly because it's a very long process. It, it, it's more of a slow fade. When you start to look outwards and you start to serve, that, that transition starts of being able to now see and have compassion for that ability to be able to, to, to kind of transition out. So – Here's where I'm going with this. If you were talking to somebody that was in your shoes and you know that, I mean, we're seeing it more and more often now where we have grown adults that are looking back on and saying, man, this is what I dealt with, but I just don't know how, what would you say is a first step to being able to start the healing process or to be able to start even recognizing that the way that we grew up wasn't necessarily the right way. It was, it was a false narrative. Well, I think it's it's one thing to be hurt as a, a six-year-old, and I say that because that's when my mom was first hospitalized. So I, I really take a lot of her understanding of the hard part of her illness back to my six-year-old self, and I think I carried that for a long time into my teens, into my early 20s of of being not very forgiving of what that was and really holding on to who she wasn't as a mom, right? And then into my 20s and 30s, I started, you know, very carefully speaking about or finding people who also shared a parent with an addiction or, you know, a mental health, but it's still super quiet about how I talk about it. And you start to hear on other people's stories. I remember one friend in particular, her mother took her own life. And I think that was very impactful to me because I thought, Wow, my mom could have chosen that all those years, yet she didn't. Mm. And how different my story would have been had she not had the resolve to keep living day after day, even on the days when I know it would have been easier to end her life or she might have thought that was a better outcome. So everything that was telling me not to talk about it, when I started to talk about it, even in really soft, confidential ways, I could let loose a little more of my story than as I went to a therapist and a really trained person who could help me look at my story and ask different questions. That's another piece. And then finally, I ended up working on a mental health project in Charlotte. We built Charlotte's first residential mental health treatment program. And by that point, I was in my 50s and raising money for something that we all knew was needed in the community. So every single day I was having conversations with people who had mothers, brothers, fathers, sisters, best friends who had mental health challenges. And I really got to see, oh my gosh, this is not a quiet story in my own closet. This is universal. And it feels so much better to be talking about it and sharing it and solving it than it does to be sweeping it under the rug. 
So I would encourage anyone listening to first find one trusted person that you can then talk with who might be a friend or a pastor or a counselor. Then maybe when you're ready, go to some really professional therapy about what you're believing and let them challenge you in your stories and your narratives until finally maybe you do some community work or you do something with others who are working to solve or change that problem. And I love that it's the first small step. And I, and that's really what it comes down to. It's it's not you're not asking people to take that big step and jump into the deep end of the pool. It's like, hey, let's just like very confidential, somebody that you trust. Just start to share there and then build out from there. And that's a that's a powerful, powerful, uh, I would say, aha moment or a wake up moment of being able to say, yes, I can now start to begin that healing process, begin that healing journey and realize it doesn't have to be the way that the world says it is. Well, it doesn't. And, you know, your story, what you were born with, the the parents, the family, the narratives in your, your life, you are you are born with those. But by your 20s, 30s, 40s, it's it's what you choose to do with that story. And I think all of us, we can write new chapters. And I do that, you know, literally in, in writing books. Um, now I coach people in writing books and writing their stories, but I also do it in metaphorical work where I lead workshops and retreats specifically for women in asking questions about what they want their next chapter to look like and, and how they begin to find what that might be. Uh, yeah, I, and I, I love that transition. Uh, let me give you the opportunity, though, because I know from my own personal life, it wasn't just one big, you know, there was there was one that kind of opened up my mind, but then there was all these other bends in the road. What what were some of the other bends that really helped you become who you are today? What were there other situations? Were there trauma, heartache, bends in the roads? Like, where, what other things have you experienced? Yeah, so I think the the first, I, as we were talking in the green room earlier, I'm 60, so I've had a lot of bends in the road, and I'm I'm still hoping for a lot more bends in the road going forward because I really hope I never stop uh, learning and growing and changing. But so one huge bend in the road was when I was 44 and ended up quitting my job and going to work for a nonprofit to work on um, building housing. And that looked like raising $10 million to build an apartment building. And I was completely unqualified and had no idea what I was doing, but worked with a group of people. I call it trusting your whisper. There was this little voice inside me saying, you're not meant to be a graphic designer anymore. And this is a problem and you care about it. And what are you going to do about it? And I call these whispers when they come along, they're inconvenient and they're uncomfortable and they're unexpected. But at the same time, and and they make you feel completely unqualified. What am I a mom of four going to do about housing people experiencing homelessness? That makes no sense. But at the same time, they're insistent. And so I listened to my first insistent whisper to um, quit my job and work on housing. And it, and it worked because I was joining a lot of people who I think were listening to their whispers to doing something about housing at the time. I listened to a whisper that said, you should write it down. This was, this was a story. And if other people read it, maybe it will change them. So that's how I ended up writing a book I never planned to write called The Hundred Story Home, which tells that story. It led to um, using that experience from building housing for the homeless to, um, as I said, building Charlotte's first residential mental health treatment center, which was another whisper of, hey, well, maybe people like your mom, maybe it doesn't have to be that way. Maybe in, you know, the 2000s, we could actually find better treatment. So working on that. 
And so I, I was really still in this cycle of, you know, building and achieving. And then I think the kind of the last really sideswipe in my story was in 2013, when I'm still, I think, believing that we can plan our life and we can work hard and you can make things happen. My husband ended up who's frankly, if you could see him, was the most incredibly athletic, physically fit person that you would ever want to meet. And he had a catastrophic heart attack while we were out of town. And anyone who's seen the films from that day will say that he should have died, that it's a true miracle that his his life was saved. And he we woke up in a new reality because he didn't have heart disease. He had rare disease. And he was diagnosed with something called SCAD, Spontaneous Coronary Artery Dissection, which meant that not only his cardiac artery could split for any unknown reason, but every artery in his body, his femoral, his iliac, his carotid. And so at any moment of any day, he could have a heart attack, stroke, aneurysm, and, and be dead. And so that really rocked our world as two very type A control type people who had thought, well, if you take care of your body, you will live a long life. Or if you work hard, you will have this measure of success. But now we were living in radical uncertainty about not only, you know, would he be alive tomorrow, but what did that mean? And so I ended up writing another book about that experience because I think for three years we lived very small and and tight and he had lots of medical emergencies, which frankly led to spiritual emergencies about, well, what does it mean to live? What does it mean to die? And so I think that was the, a really big bend in our story because we started having to decide, well, what is this life and what do we want on our bucket list and what do we want on our to-do list and which one should we be paying more attention to? And so we really have, that's led to a way of living that hopefully is, is really waking up every day, grateful that life is a gift and trying to spend it with people we love in pursuits of things that we think matter in this world. So really reprioritizing our entire life. Wow. Uh, so I have, uh, if it's okay, I want to put a pin in that one piece there because I want to come back to that. However, going back to the one, the, the bigger one about the trusting your whisper, could you have been able to trust your whisper when you were going through your 20s and earlier 20s? Because I think you said it was more right around the age 40 that you started to really trust and listen to the whisper and then taking that big step. And there, there's a little bit of... I shouldn't say a little bit. There's a lot of fear just quitting a job and starting and jumping out. And like you said, it was millions of dollars and big project you felt completely unqualified for. Could you do that at a younger age or or was it the the healing that allowed you to be able to trust yourself more? That's a great question. And I think the short answer is I think our lives are always talking to us. And it's, it's learning to listen. So I think young children are actually really great at at listening to that. Um, My new children's book is called Grace Heard a Whisper. And it's around this idea that there's a little girl who's, who's hearing something, but the, the adults in her life are too busy and the world is too loud. And, you know, her sister's too distracted by social media to, to hear it. But I think little children hear it. I think we then grow up and we stop trusting that inner voice that's telling us the, the right you know, way to go or, or what's really meant for us. Cause I do think that there is something imprinted on our hearts that we came here. It's who we were meant to be. And we spend a lot of our life on shoulds and things, things we think we should do. And eventually we can come around to the must. What, what must I do? What do I know 
that is right for me. So I really think it's this process of we come with this whisper. It is our soul talking to us. It is why we are here. We spend a lot of time getting louder and louder and louder in the world and listening to other people and other things that we think are important. And I think there comes a, a moment of quiet in our lives that we can start to ask and listen to what, what do I want? Um, it not my father want, my mother want my grandparents, my teacher, my friends, what, what do I want? And I think if you get quiet and you are intentional about wanting to live a life that is yours, I think you can start to tune in and hear it. And once you, once you do take that first step and it, it works out in ways that are completely surprising, like building an apartment building for people experiencing homelessness or writing a book that you think no one will read. And all of a sudden people are reading it and, and it's resonating. It gives you more confidence to say, okay, I, I think this is my path. And I think we spend a lot of time really kind of arm wrestling and gritting our way through these life plans that we think make us successful. And what we should be spending more time is listening to that whisper that takes us on our life path and that has a lot less certainty to it. You just have to be open and stepping out in faith that this feels like who I'm meant to be in this world. Okay, so here's the million-dollar question. Somebody that has never listened to their whisper, never listened to how and who they were created to be, has listened to the loud social, loud talk, loud everything else, what is the very first thing that they need to do? And I, I just want a real practical this is how you get started, uh, especially for those that are listening, because frankly, we go through a lot of these things and we talk about strategies and theories and, oh, this is what it can be. How do I get started? What is the first thing I need to do to get started? Um, I think the very first thing is is some quiet, not around other people's voices, not frankly, sorry, not listening to a podcast, listen to this podcast, know that you need to do it, but you also need to spend some, some quiet time thinking, you know, remembering who you are, remembering what you wanted to do. I just gave a talk recently about living life backwards. And I said, the, the first thing that maybe you should do is give yourself an expiration date. And by that, I mean, yes, imagine when you might die. And so give yourself two expiration dates. The first one is is anticipated. In my mind, that was 64. So when I was 44, I was highly aware that if I am going to be my dad, I have 20 years left. What, what do I not want to regret? You know, ask yourself, what do I not want to regret if that is my date, right? And then the second one, the ask. Can I pause you? This yes. Really, I think this is really important. I'm going to pause you just for a second. Because you said, ask yourself the question. And I think that's, you know, quiet plus the question give you focus. And if it's quiet, then your brain, want, at least my dude, I got ADHD, all the other kind of stuff that I was never diagnosed as a kid. But if I'm just quiet, my brain just goes everywhere. But to have a focused question, I think, is the key tied together with the quiet aspect. And then one more step that I that I think, and you may have been getting to this, but sorry, the, is to write it down. Like it just, it allows me to focus. Oh, yeah. I, I've got journals. I've got books. I write. I think writing is a fantastic way to know what you think. And I spend every morning, my early morning writing mm. to know what I think. Yeah. So if you're... If you're imagining what is my expiration date, and I'll come back to a second piece of that, being still, what do you not want to regret? 
you start to shake some things out. But that could be t- depressing to think, well, okay, I'm going to die. So you could live in, if, if you're 60 and going, oh my gosh, I've got four years and it's just hopeless. Well, give yourself an aspirational date too. And my aspirational date is 105 because I actually know a woman who read the 100 story home when she was 100 years old. And she became convicted that she needed to build housing for the homeless in her um, hometown of Kingsport, Tennessee. She came to see what we built here in Charlotte when she was 102. She started a nonprofit at 103, and she spent the next two years building this this housing until she died at 105. Her name is Miss Joe. So that is my aspirational expiration date. That at that. 105, I will have as much energy, passion, and compassion as Miss Joe did at 105. Man, I absolutely love that. I love that. All right, so then let's kind of go back to that pin real quick. And I I know we're kind of running out of time. We might have to extend this just a hair, but go back to that other pin. The belief of the narrative of if I work hard, we're going to have a healthy life. If I work hard, I'm going to have the perfect life. If I work hard, I take care of myself. And then all of a sudden you said, you're now living with radical uncertainty of this could end right now. That changed the way that you're crafting your narrative. It changed the way that you're actually writing your narrative. And so kind of tying all that back together, what is it that you do right now to write the rest of the narrative moving forward? What do you do on a regular basis, on a daily basis to really, truly craft the narrative moving forward? I think a couple of things, because for me, I, I am actually writing. <laughs> so I right. I write every, every morning and I've written a new book called Trust the Whisper. And it's it's talking about stories of people who've listened to that inner whisper and that inner knowing and what they're doing. I try to wake up every day with an intention. And so whether that's writing or telling these other stories, I try to spend the rest of the day doing good and loving well. I I think for so many years, I spent too much time on the doing good and and achieving and and imagining what mattered. And I kind of forgot the people around me, my children, my friends. I was so focused on achieving and I forgot that, well, none of this matters unless you have people around you that you love and who love you back. So I, I, I try to live by those things, do good. If it's a random act of kindness every day, do that. If you're working on something bigger, continue to do that. But always remember that no matter what it is that you're achieving, it's not really going to matter unless you've spent time taking care of the people you love and letting them know that you love them and and living your life with those people that you love. So. Mm. Yeah, this has been incredible. All right, I, I give everybody this chance because we've talked about so many really awesome things. If you wanted the individuals listening to only walk away with one thing, because I know often we listen to things, there's so many things that's coming in, but what would be the one thing that you would say, if you get this, you've really had a profitable session here listening to this podcast, what would that one thing be? Your life is, is calling to you. Your life is talking to you. Listen, trust that whisper. Mic drop. I love it. <laughs> Absolutely love that. All right. Um, how do they get in touch with you? Because uh, I know that you do a lot of different things. You've got the books out there. Like you said, you've got some workshops. How can people get in contact with you to either learn more about your stories, learn more about the things that you're doing? Where can they find you? 
I have two websites. One is kathyizzard.com. So that's my name, K-A-T-H-Y-I-Z-A-R-D.com. And that's where you can read about my books. And I have some videos there about More Place, the, the housing that we created. You can see those kind of things. I also teach for, for women. I focus on women because I think they sometimes need 10 times more encouragement than men. I think there's a lot of women who had big dreams for their kids, but they forgot what their own were. So I teach coach... Um, on womenfaithstory.com. And you can see workshops, do one-on-one whisper coaching, one-on-one book coaching, but whether you're writing actual chapters or just trying to craft your next metaphorical chapter in your life, um, I love working with women who want to ask deep questions in good company. Yeah. And if I can finally say anything else, and if you're listening to this, you might, we'll have little snippets in the background. There's that theme that just runs. It's trust the whisper and it's all over everywhere. And I I love that as a theme to be able to say, yes, trust your whisper. So thank you for being here. You're so welcome, Tim. Thanks. Thanks for this podcast. I love the stories that you do. And I love that you're telling people to recraft their narrative and think deeply about what they want their story to be. Yeah. Again, we are so appreciative of those that are willing to share like yourself. For those that are listening, man, I don't even know what to say other than what I say every time, man. If you heard something that really inspired you, that that resonated with you, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, and I know when I talk with Kathy, it's the exact same thing. Reach out to us and tell us because that inspires us and it, it fulfills us in a way that I can't even express. So reach out. So whether you email or call or talk, whether it's directly to me or whether it's to Kathy, I am totally fine skipping me and going directly to Kathy because that's yeah. what it's all about. I have, yes, my email is on my website. I do not have people. It's me. So if, if you want, if you want to have a conversation, you can send me a direct email. So. Yeah. So do that. Absolutely do that. And then the last thing is, is if you're watching or listening to this on podcast, again, like I say, this before. You're missing about 80% of it. So we actually do put clips on YouTube. Check us out on YouTube. You can find that out. You can see the rest of it. So in case you haven't, subscribe. Make sure you go ahead and do that. And then until the next story comes out, keep writing and crafting your narrative. Thank you so much, Kathy. And this has truly been a blessing. Thanks again. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for listening to today's show. But before you go, let me ask you a question. How would you like to be the author of your story? Take the next step now at www.narrative.live. Enter your details to connect with a community of others just like you that are tired of living under the false narrative. Finding your true story and writing your narrative, it will give you clarity, freedom of your day, and it just might change your life forever.